Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Well, now we have a limit of life and mortality male and female relationships, moving forward when you are faced with complications. But we had this wonderful person called Bernie Sanders, who's a medical doctor, who's gone way beyond being a medical doctor into being a healer. And he's here to heal our souls, to give us a solve that will help us move forward in life because he understands from the inside out exactly what the struggles are like. So good morning to you, Bernie Siegel. Take it Carol. away. What do you want to share today? <laughs> well, I want to share that you shouldn't drink before you come on the show. <laughs> because my name is Siegel, not Sanders. Okay? <laughs> you know, I did a Facebook search on you to get on your Facebook to make sure I was up to speed. And you were right next to Sanders, so I'm sorry. There you go. I have that brain okay. glitch. Are you getting Are you All getting right. that a lot these days? What? The wrong name? The, the, no. The combination? But, you know, but, as a matter of fact, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it therapeutically. That in, um, uh, what was I going to say? In, um, in the office, when I would introduce myself as Dr. Bernie Siegel, so people could use whatever title they wanted. They could say, hi, Bernie, or hello, Dr. Siegel, or whatever. But, you know, it wasn't me being the MD medical deity. Um, you know, I'm the doctor. And then calling them, oh, hi, Joe, hi, Carol. And they had to say, Dr. Siegel. Um, you know, some people would say, hey, I respect all you went through to gain your medical degree. So I call you doctor out of respect for all that you've done. And for others, you know, you were a personal friend, and, hey, Bernie, how are you doing? And uh, it was okay. Mm. So uh, I didn't demand attention, uh, and I think there are a lot of doctors, though, who do, and uh, it's it's an unhealthy relationship that way. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting. Well, you are going through a lot of uh, doctor, doctor-patient responses and relationships currently, uh, do you want to share with us the process of doing that in the older ages of life or as a caretaker? Well, it, uh, it, it just, I, I think acting, you know, it always comes back in my life to the, the, the answer is love. I always say, I don't care what your question is, the answer is love. And <laughs> that you have to, if you do out of love, I mean, my wife um, has had multiple sclerosis for at least 50 years. And that's part of what got me into what I am doing today. You know, when a doctor, uh, I always remember her neurologist saying, meet me in the hospital cafeteria. I got something to tell you. And then he tells me my wife has a disease and what's going to happen to her. And I realized, why don't you say come over to the office for me to talk to you? What the hell are we doing in a hospital cafeteria? And I realized he's protecting himself. Because how can I you know, display emotion, act like a human being in the hospital cafeteria with all the people I work with. Um, and I thought, yeah, well, he's got a problem with it. 
But so did I, because what he tells me I think is going to happen, I'm a doctor. I've realized I don't know the future. You know, I've learned there's potential. And that's when I got more involved in holistic medicine and a whole host of other things, because I learned about survival behavior. You know, you, you mm-hmm. learn from people who don't die when they're supposed to. It's the simplest way mm-hmm. of putting it. And when I began lecturing and see people in the audience I thought were dead because they, you know, <laughs> never came back to the office or anything else, I'd say, hey, what's going on? Oh, I got a story to tell you. And it could be from leaving mm-hmm. your troubles to God to quitting a law office and getting a job as being a violinist in an orchestra, to moving to Colorado to die in the mountains. And his quote was, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die when I called up to ask why I wasn't invited to the funeral. But, I mean, those are the crazy (laughs) things that I realized happened, you know. And uh, so I try to teach those things to people. See, psychiatrists are aware of survivor behavior. Because if you... Mm -hmm thought, okay, I'm going to die in a few months, I'm depressed, I'll go see a psychiatrist to help me. And then they help you get your life straightened out. You don't die when you're supposed to. As a matter of fact, even hospices, you see the power of the mind. The the first hospice opened in Brantford, Connecticut, not far from where I live. And I got involved in their care. I did a lot of things with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, got her to come and speak at Yale, and so forth. And But when hospice opened its doors the first day, people would get driven there. And a number, a significant number, died on the way there. You'd say, why? They're told they're going to hospice. That's the place you die. So they, what I call, turned off their switch. And the light went out on the way. Mm -hmm. The people who got there, Almost 100% of them died within the first week. Now, who suffered the most? The nurses, because they were there to be caring and compassionate for these people. And if they didn't live, there was nobody to be compassionate to. But hospice has evolved, you know, and learned about compassion. And now, uh, I always say, if you want to know a good hospice, call them and ask, do you have dropouts or graduations? Those are titles from some hospices. And you say, what do you mean? Well, do you have people who come in, get their life in order, and say, I think I'll go home now, I feel better? Um, And if they say yes, then that's one I would not mind going to. Um, And that's why, as they say, the some who do it so beautifully literally have graduations and uh, have a big party, and they send a bunch of people home because they're feeling so much better having interacted. See, imagine never communicating with your kids. I mean, having a terrible relationship with your family. And now you're dying, and they show up, and you straighten out your relationship. And it's so wonderful to be close to your children again. And then people say, you mind if I go home for a while, spend some time with the kids? Uh, And sure, fine, go ahead. And uh, what a difference it makes for those people. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember when my father once said, I never want to go to a nursing home. So the morning he was supposed to go to a nursing home after a massive massive series of strokes um, and he couldn't talk or walk or anything, uh, not move out of the bed, that's the morning he died. I thought, how perfect on some level that he chose 
everybody had visited, so forth and so on. It was as if he chose, and not only did he do that, but he waited for my mom to come into the hospital. She held his hand, took his last breath, and the light moved from his body out to the window. I mean, these right. are these are stories that. No, yeah, you know, I mean, see that. I wish everybody that's could what I often often ask too. What time did they die? Who was with them? See, more people die in the hospital at night because the doctor isn't there to stop you. And, you know, the doctor feels like a failure. See, I'll let you die. And your family isn't there to make you feel guilty. But when you can do what your father did, you know that it's a loving family. I mean, I've had that with my in-laws, my parents. Uh, I mean, my father literally died laughing because of stories my mother was telling. (laughs) And he looked so healthy when he died, I thought he was going to change his mind. Because he was tired of his body. And he said, you know, mm. so we said, all right, what do you want to do? He said, I'll die Sunday. And we see, again, the fascination. We told everybody that Grandpa's going to die on Sunday. If you want to come, let us know. And we knew who every person who was going to come. When did he die? When the last person who said, I'm coming, walked in the door. Now, I mm. know that's no coincidence that he knew unconsciously right. this is what's going to happen. And uh, I can go. And another, my father-in-law, oh, he was such a wonderful man. Two lessons, I'd say, from him. When he was ready to go, he was quadriplegic. Who would want to live in a body like that? Well, he lived to 97, wow. teaching us all things. And wow. one night, when we were all there, his wife, daughter, and myself, you know, to feed him and give him his pills, <clears throat> he said, no, not tonight. No dinner, no pills. And they knew, we all knew he was saying goodbye. And he died quietly that night. So when the nurse called wow. you know, during the night, I said, yeah, we know. Uh, we knew he was going to die. Um, and uh, he did very peacefully. The two lessons from him. One, uh, a humorous one, I asked him what information he had for seniors. And he said, tell them to fall on something soft because that's when he injured his spinal cord. A few days later, I come in, and he says to me, it doesn't always work. I said, what are you talking about? He said, what I told you about falling on something soft. They stood me up in therapy. I toppled over on my wife and broke her leg. So tell them to just fall up. And that's what I had chiseled (laughs) into his headstone. He just fell up, because that's what I felt about his death, you know? No dinner, thank you. No pills, thank you. Boom. He just left his body. And uh, I could go on telling you more stories about all the relatives and everybody. But well, let me just say my mother, because of what you were saying about your father and mother. I knew my mother, on the other hand, would not die with her children in the room. That's her you know, definition of being nice to your kids. Don't do it while they're here. So I used to leave the room regularly. You know, I'd visit, I'd go out, because I knew if I sit here, she won't die while I'm in the room. And sure enough, I don't mean she was alone, she was with other people. I would Mm -hmm. go out and come back, and yep, she died. Because she was living Mm -hmm. my message of healing. Um, She had leukemia, Mm -hmm. she had a lot of things happen. And she trained doctors about surviving. It impressed me when she died, five or six doctors called me to tell me what a wonderful woman she was. 
And she was oh teaching them, you know, about being a survivor and about what her son was teaching her. Oh, she was a classic. She wouldn't leave her own home. I made her get people come in because I'm the nervous one, you know, who wouldn't move up here into our house or uh, assisted living or whatever. Um, no, I don't want to leave home. So she had people come in. But uh, one other lesson from her and her sense of humor <clears throat> for everybody. Mm. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk, said, um, in his country, you hear temple bells, and you stop whatever you're doing, and you breathe peace. He said, you come to the United States, mm. it's noise. So you have to make your own bells. Mm. He said, it could be a red light. It doesn't have to be a sound. You could pull up the red light instead of getting aggravated. Breathe peace. And I mm. thought, what a wonderful sound is a telephone. Telephone rings. What do you get aggravated, mm-hmm. you know? You know, it's interrupting your day. Somebody's trying to sell you something. But breathe peace, and it really makes a difference, I discovered. You let it ring five or six mm-hmm. times, and you breathe peace. And mm-hmm. when you pick it up, you're not angry at the salesman or a family member or whoever is calling you at some crazy hour. And I called my mother one evening, and she doesn't answer the phone. And I'm getting panicky because at that time she hadn't done what I told her to do, get somebody to be in the house with her. And I thought, oh, boy, something's happened. I'll call the neighbor because I had all their numbers. And then the phone is picked up and she says, yes, hello. I said, Ma, are you okay? Why are you asking? You didn't answer the phone. I'm doing what you tell people to do. I'm breathing peace. (laughs) So... I said to her, that's for other people. You pick up the phone right away, so I don't worry. <laughs> but that's what I loved about you her. Clear, you were not yeah, breathing. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, she, was living, uh, she was living a life. Because when she said to me one day, oh, i got to go get my blood count. I said, what are you talking about? You need a blood count. Don't you remember I have leukemia? That blew my mind. I forgot hmm. that she had a type of cancer hmm. because she was so full of life. I never, you know, focused on her disease. It was always her life and how wonderful she was. And uh, as I say, when people get tired, I call it the light switch. Oh, there was a, a doctor who called me and said, a mother has been brain dead for two years and is being tube fed. And hospice won't accept her because if they pulled the tube... Hospice said, the lawyer for hospice said, you're murdering your mother. We're not going to take her Mm. without a tube. And I said to the family, look, I'll pull the tube. So when you show up, you'll say she hasn't got one. Doctor took it out. But when she showed up, the lawyer still said, oh, no, no, no. You're not going to do this. So I put her in the hospital, Mm. and I went over to meet the family there. And I said, what I want you to do is walk up to your mother because she hears you, and say, Mom, we love you. Your love will stay with us. If you need to go, it's okay. And they all started crying and said, Oh, we can't do it. I said, I'll do it for you. I went over. I stood by the bed. Now, remember, this is a woman in a coma, but everybody hears you in coma, asleep, under anesthesia. And I said, Your family is standing around the bed. They all love you. They want you to know that your love will stay with them but that if you need to go, it's okay to go. Fifteen minutes later, she died. Mm. Now, you see, they didn't have to pull out the tube and then 
you know, get in the newspapers about murdering their mother and, you know, the, yeah. all these cases that you read about. Yeah, you let people know <laughs> it's okay to go. Your love will stay mm-hmm. with us. Because I always say that's the only, the only thing of permanence, the only thing that's immortal is love. So you said the answer to everything is love. So tell me about the caretaker's stress, strain, endurance, worry, angst. You mentioned it with your mother. I know you're going through it. I have gone through it. This is is part of having elderly family members or or family members with Alzheimer's and dementia. Yeah. I mean, I'm an elderly family member, too. But, you know, my wife, as I said, (laughs) well, what I saw in in myself, my wife, as I said, was diagnosed with MS years ago, and I I saw how I reacted like a typical doctor. Okay, I'm going to be left with five kids and no wife and blah, blah, blah. Well, over 60 years later, she's still, you know, we're still married and she's still here. Um, And then Mm -hmm. a few years ago, she developed a small breast cancer. And I could see how different I was because as a doctor, you know, I took care of patients, breast cancer, did the surgery and so forth. I didn't suddenly think, okay, this is what's going to happen to my wife. No. I said, well, because I learned this from one of our children who at the time he was seven said to me, my knee hurts, I need an x-ray. See, the intuitive is amazing. People should pay attention to it. Why would a seven-year-old tell his doctor father I need an x-ray when his father tells him, go take a hot bath, you probably bruised your knee. Well, the x-ray showed he had a tumor. But again, oh. you know, my, my first reaction was, okay, he's going to have his leg cut off and he'll be dead in a year. And I felt guilty because I'm telling him to take a hot bath instead of an x-ray. Well, it turned out to be a benign tumor. But what he said to me was a very simple statement. Remember, this is a seven-year-old who, before we knew it was a benign tumor, said to me, Dad, you're handling this poorly. We're trying to have a nice day and you're worried about next year. So when I learned my wife had breast cancer, I let our son be a therapist, you know? We just worked on having a mm-hmm. nice day. The, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Uh, you know, what? Uh, it was just nuts. But I realized mm-hmm. how different I was because of the experience and our son being a therapist, you know, at age seven. Mm-hmm. Um and so we're living years later. I, oh, and my sense of humor. I hope you don't mind these crazy stories, but they're true. My wife's having mammograms each, each year. And um, she had a mammogram, and uh, they came out and said, oh, yeah, I guess, and we got a copy of the report. Your wife's breasts are normal. Well, I wrote back to the uh, radiology center, and I said, my wife's breasts are far better than normal, okay? And you should realize that. They're much mm-hmm. more than normal. And I sent them a letter. Because I try to make people smile, you know? But I got no answer from them. And I thought, uh-oh, because sometimes they just think I'm nuts. But a year later, we go back for the next mammogram. And I could tell they remembered my letter. It must have been in her record. You know, it's like, here's that crazy guy waiting in the you know, in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the oh. radiologist came out after the mammogram and said, your wife's breasts are excellent. <laughs> and then everybody <laughs> burst out laughing, see? Um, but again, it made their day better too. Oh. 
And that's why uh, I don't mind being what I call crazy. Uh, because a lot of times in phone calls when I say crazy things, um, people say, is this Dr. Siegel? And I realize they know my behavior. And uh, But I'm seen as an individual, if you know what I mean. It's not oh, sure. another patient, another problem. Oh, that's Siegel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then they're relaxed mm-hmm. and we talk to each other. But I think mm-hmm. as a caregiver, um, yes, my wife, we, we have help. First of all, I'd say you got to ask for help. Um, and so we have somebody coming in for half a day to be with her so I can have free time as well. But I feel out of my love, I want to get her up in the morning and help her get to bed at night. Um, that those are things that I feel are more personal, and um, I want her to be comfortable with that. And we've been a team, and we have a sense of humor, um, so we can be with each other. I often, as a matter of fact, say to women, you know how to handle your husband. Your husband gets angry, say you're so handsome when you're angry. See, my wife will say things like that. And you end up smiling. How could you be angry if your Mm. wife's telling you you're handsome? And it doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> I make a point. But when no. you smile, there isn't a problem anymore. And, um, you know, the other night my wife had some severe pain and got her to the emergency room and she's had a heart attack. And so I'm oh, yeah. spending a lot of time in the hospital uh, just sitting with her, holding her hand, because the relationships, when somebody you love is with you, uh, all kinds of studies have shown this. I, and I tell people, do this. Put your hand in a bucket of ice water. Sit alone mm-hmm. and do it. And see how long you can keep it there. Then get your pets and your family to sit around you and put your hand back in the ice water. And watch how much longer you keep it there. See? Mm-hmm. Because of their love and their feelings. So it makes right. a hell of a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you know you're making a difference for the people that you're there for your wife this weekend is one of many yeah. examples. So, so Bernie, I had a, who is there? I, let me just say this. I made a pinup years ago okay. that that says right. you make a difference on it. Okay? It hmm. was a little pin, you make a difference. And when I would see people acting in a loving way out in public, I mean, it could be in an airport, it, it could be at the hospital, I would walk over and give them the pin and say, here, thank you. And you could just feel, you know, how much it meant to them and how grateful they were um, wow. for that. You know, that to realize that mm-hmm. your love, your caring makes a difference. And uh, mm-hmm. for people to understand that, you know, that simple act can make such a difference mm-hmm. to people. I, I call it in the broader term, reparenting, that when people know somebody loves them, uh, then they begin to take care of themselves. If you if you haven't grown up with love, surviving is not an easy thing to do. Right. So so as a caregiver, a caregiver needs to say to themselves, "I'm making a difference. I'm making a difference." Because caregivers that I work with come into my office, they are befuddled, they're fatigued, they're irritated, they're overwhelmed. They don't remember who they are or what they're doing. They feel right. guilty, they feel fretful, they feel afraid, they feel blamed for things that go wrong. Sometimes they're the only one in the family that's doing anything and everybody else is in denial or ignoring them. Or 
in, or they're blamed for decisions that only they were around to make. The list of, of complications for a caregiver can go on and on and on, and they are depressing. Well, the problem what do you do that with- I learned, it's like you were describing me as a surgeon early on. I wrote to the dean at my medical school. Nobody ever answers. I kept sending the same letter back every time. There was a new dean saying, you trained me you know, to be a, a mechanic, basically, but you didn't teach me how to take care of people or myself. So I found it very painful. And a matter of fact, what changed my life was a patient saying, I need to know how to live between office visits. You're not taught that. So I changed my direction and started helping people live. Then I didn't feel like a failure, you know, if I couldn't cure everything. But I had to learn looking into spiritual things, studying religions, you know, the guilt, the shame, the blame. God gave me cancer. Uh, I mean, it's just all this craziness that goes on right. and, and have answers for people. And basically, it, it's that a perfect world is not creation. You know, that's what God had to say. It's a magic trick if it's a perfect world that we're here to live and learn. And uh, once you shift into that process of living and learning um, and really ask yourself, what am I learn from this experience? Uh, then something happens, different happens. Because what I often ask people, I do a lot of work with dreams and drawings so that consciousness can present itself, see, not thinking. Um, I do that. And another simple test you can ask all the therapists to do is say, what are you experiencing? Okay. I don't want a diagnosis. Don't say I'm depressed, um, you know, or I have post-traumatic stress. What does it feel like? And then when right. negative words come out, you say, what else in your life fits those words? So when somebody says pressure, what else in your life is causing you pressure? Say failure. What else in your life fits that word failure? And uh, some people immediately know, before I even say to them anything about the word, and they say thank you. And others go home and straighten their lives out. And then they're a hell of a lot healthier. You know, because as I say, it's not about guilt, shame, and blame. But if you study religions as I began to do, you'd be amazed at the things that popes say to people. This is like 150 years ago. But when the pope says, don't vaccinate yourself against smallpox because God decides who gets smallpox. So you want to go to heaven? Don't vaccinate. Come on. I'd like to save my kid's life. No, that's too bad. You don't do that. And to quote Billy Graham... Does God want me to have cancer? Not necessarily. I thought, what is he talking about? Well, what he was talking about is, if you have a wonderful life and you forget about God, maybe God will give you a knock on the head to get you back to church. But I love something from Maimonides a thousand years ago. Disease is a loss of health. People need to understand that. So if you've lost something, yeah, then help your neighbor find it and help yourself find it. And the other thing he said, which people also really need to do, he said it a thousand years ago. First, let me give you a quote from a year or two ago. The Cat Fancy magazine. We have nine cats. My husband and I smoke in the house. One of the cats dies of lung cancer. The others are having trouble breathing. And I will say, this was a full-page letter about her experience with her cats. 
And I will stop there and say to an audience, what do you do? And if people say you stop smoking, I say, wrong answer. Because what this woman went on to say is, Doug and I now smoke in the yard. We love our cats more than the convenience of smoking indoors. We're not killing our cats anymore. Are you killing yours? I couldn't believe a magazine would publish that without comment. And they didn't publish my comment that I mailed them. But I'm not killing our cats, but I'm killing myself. Why? Because you need to love yourself. Yeah. And Maimonides said it a thousand years ago. If people took as good care of themselves as they do their animals, they'd suffer fewer illnesses. So as I said, the key is if you grow up with love. A Harvard study. Students were asked, did your parents love you? No. Middle age, 98% had suffered a major illness. Yes, my parents loved me. By middle age, 24% had suffered a major illness. So reading a label doesn't make you healthy and live a healthy lifestyle, if you know what I mean. You know, we can put it on a cigarette, on a soda bottle, and, and say it's not good for you. But that doesn't stop people from doing it. And I say, you've got to love yourself and love your life. And it's not about not dying, because they always say the vegetarian meditating joggers get very upset. You know, look what I did, and I died anyway. That's right. Enjoy your life. (laughs) Heal your life. You see, Monday morning, you know, as an example, we have more heart attacks, suicides, and illnesses. So, again, your thoughts become your chemistry and can make you susceptible to illness. You know, where laughter enhances survival, tragedy, loss, you know, like you're talking about caregiving. Yeah, you get depressed about it and everything else. Uh, the caregivers are just as likely to get sick. And sometimes they'll use it to oh, get yeah. attention for themselves instead of saying, no, I need a rest. Yeah, the words I remember from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross years ago, Bernie, you have needs too. That's when I was worn out as a doctor trying to save everybody and fix everything. And she said, you have needs too. And that's what we all have to realize. So when you're asked to do something you don't want to do, the correct answer is no. And nurses have a lot of trouble with that. Uh, And that has to do with the personality of why did you become a nurse? That's something else everybody needs to look at. Why are you a doctor, veterinarian, plumber? What did you want? And look at the healthy and the unhealthy reasons and get to know yourself. But caregivers need care, you asked, too. You asked a question on your uh, Facebook, like, what are you doing with your life? And I, right. I responded, and I said, you know, sometimes I'm making the most of my life, and sometimes I'm doing very little with my life. And I realized as I was thinking that through that sometimes it's important to do very little. Um, that yeah. it is in the moment of nothing where you rest, and I would imagine as a caregiver, sometimes it's important to sit and do nothing. Yeah. As but you well see, it as isn't doing nothing. You have to be very proactive and fast. Yeah. Go, I go learned it, it from my wife. Because I used to think taking a nap was a waste of time. But mm. I got to a point in my life where I realized, waste, you know, taking a nap, resting, uh, doing something, even working in the garden you love to do, isn't a waste of time. It's doing something. Mm. So taking a nap is doing something. And she taught me that. (laughs) So I don't mind resting now or 
taking the dog for a walk, whatever. Um, it's doing something. And uh, I can spend it, quiet my mind, and feel good about doing it. And the key is doing what makes you happy. So then you benefit from it, whether it's sitting down and taking a rest or whether it's, you know, repairing the kitchen sink. It's what you like to do. I mean, I can say that as a surgeon, yeah, I, I like fixing things, you know, working on things. So... There are a lot of things I would do that I don't call them work because I'm happy to make something, you know, be restored or functioning again. And uh, I feel good about it. And, uh, you know, it could be landscaping, making it a prettier world. I don't consider that wasting time. I consider it improving the world. So I'd say to people, think of, again, what makes you happy and that you do it Again, because it's what makes you happy, not a life imposed on you. Because that's important to understand, that you don't become somebody because of what your parents want. And you don't become submissive, that you speak up and do what feels right for you. So, Bernie, we often talk about the dilemmas people face. How about the emotions of fear and and? And, and and the anticipation that kind of paralyzes people, the fear that makes well, them feel uh, in pain, fear of someone dying, yeah. fear of of failing. See, fear is is a, an emotion that is meant to protect us. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> I noticed once going through the woods, I thought I saw a fox or coyote on the path in front of me. And I immediately spun around and was going the other way to protect myself. And then I stopped and thought, wait a minute, take another look. And it was some tree branches and a shadow that looked like a creature. And I thought, wow, look what the fear did to you. You, had, you were already getting away and protecting yourself. But you see, then it's appropriate to be f- fearful because it could save your life. Um, And when you're in fear, the parts of your brain uh, that get the most blood are changed so that you can be physically active and protect yourself and your muscles and so forth. But it's detrimental to your health. So when you're fearful of what's going to happen to my family, am I going to lose my job, Uh, doesn't anybody love me? I mean, it's all these things that you're fearful of. How do I look today? What do people think of me? Then you're in trouble. You're vulnerable. Hmm. And people have to understand that. So when you have a fear, ask yourself, is this appropriate? Does it make sense to have this? Um, I I don't worry about what people think of me, how I look. Who cares? (laughs) That's not my problem. (laughs) So if I get up Hmm. in front of an audience, you know, I'm not fearful. Um... And let me say this, when I would see some really well-known actors in the office who developed cancer, and uh, I had a very simple statement for them. I said, a question, what? You get on the stage, nobody applauds, how do you feel? And if they said, well, I feel terrible. And I said, then get off the stage. Because if you're dealing with a Mm life-threatening illness, you don't want to have that happen. And if they said, hey, I'm doing the best I can, if they don't like it, 
okay, I can accept that. You know, I'm trying to give them something. And then my answer was, okay, keep doing what you're doing. And I may say <laughs> that what you know, what we know from studying actors um, is that if they're in a comedy, their immune function improves and the stress hormone levels go down. And if the opposite, in other words, if you're in a tragedy, you're more vulnerable to illness, just even acting, because your immune function goes down and stress hormone levels go up. So I always say, watch what happens on Broadway in the winter. If it's some tragic play, uh, the lead actors often drop out because they get sick. Whereas if it's got Mel Brooks, you know, with it, uh, they get through it okay. Everybody's laughing, having a good time. And one study done, and I would tell this to everybody, um, the, um, if you laugh, this is what was done in the study. Cancer patients were told, laugh for no apparent reason every three or four hours. And the control group, hey, something funny happens, laugh. Well, what happens? Of course, you know from my talking, the people who laughed for no reason had a better survival rate than those who didn't. So, again, it's the benefit of that. And it also affects the people around you. That and relationships. I mean, there are many studies that show better survival if you have a dog in the house. Well, even in one nursing home, this impressed me. People were given a plant in their room, potted plant. One side of the hallway was told Take care of the plant, fertilize it, get it out in the sun periodically, um, take care of it. Um, the other people across the hall were told, we're decorating your room. We'll take care of it. Guess who lived three to four years longer? The people who were wow. told to three take to care four of years. the plant. Yeah. And I've had families come in and say, oh, my mother has cancer, we need your help. Um, she has, uh, this one woman has 12 cats, the place stinks, we don't even visit her. We'll get rid of the cats because she has to get, you know, therapy now. And I said, whoa, stop, what is it? Don't get rid of the cats. Mm. You do that, your mother's dead. Mm. What do you mean? It mm -hmm. smells there. We don't even like, you go in and clean the house, the litter boxes and everything else, and keep it clean. And tell your mother you can't find anybody who wants 12 cats. Then she won't die. <laughs> hmm. And I, I'm laughing because, boy, were they thankful years later, you know, knowing how the cats kept their mother alive. And a quote from a woman. Wow. I have nine children. I can't die till they're all married and out of the house. Twenty hmm. years later, she died of her cancer when her ninth child left home. Now, you see, wow. as a doctor... What interests me is, lady, how did you manage to control the cancer for 20 years? It wasn't her treatment. I mean, she just did well for 20 years. And then, boom. See, she was living a role. She was mama and wasn't taking care of herself right. but everybody else. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I met men who die where uh, one fellow with lung cancer was told by his health plan um, were not going to pay for uh, cataract surgery because you'll be dead in six months and we don't want to waste oh. the money. He died in a week. He walked into home, went to bed, and died. And um, that's, again, you know, why on my website I have deceiving people into health. I mean, how our words 
are so impacted and empowered. Yeah. Very, very powerful. I'm wondering if, uh, you know, you were talking about fear, and, if, and it, 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 can you use fear to your own benefit? Oh, loneliness, because in a sense you're saying loneliness is a potential killer. <laughs> That's pretty extreme for me to say that, but talk to us more about loneliness, because when a spouse dies or children leave and there's empty nesting or people retire or, it, you know, people yeah. move to a strange well, place, the- they don't know. Loneliness is pervasively there. Right. And let me, let me say this, because we don't think of loneliness in that way. I'd say you have to love yourself, you know what I mean? Be comfortable with yourself. So you don't feel as lonely when you're like, I call myself a multiple personality, that if I'm with myself, <laughs> I, I don't have to feel lonely because I can enjoy myself. That may be hard for people to understand. But, um, well, I think about it a lot with my wife and I, uh, again, our relationships, that we don't need other people. We have each other, so we don't feel lonely. And, you know, there may be a lot of couples who have to go out, go to parties, join clubs, do things with other people. But we, if you feel complete with yourself, then you don't need other things or people, and you're not lonely. Now, it doesn't mean you may not have pets or, you know, other things around you, but it's still, it's part of your life. You don't need others supplying you with things. And that's an important part. And as I say, the other is having some meaning in your life, what the relationships do. So it could be at work or anything else. I always remember telling one uh, patient of mine who's a veterinarian that I was going to quit surgery because I couldn't take the emotional impact of what I was going through with people. And he said, don't. I said, why not? I said, I want to be a veterinarian. You helped me get into a veterinary school. He said, no. I said, why not? He said, because people bring the pets in. And what we all need to focus on is, how do I help people? Then you won't be lonely. I, I mean it. You can work in a restaurant. You can be a plumber. But think about the people who come in. And the people you do things for. I mean, I get into therapy sessions with all kinds of, you know, repair people who come to our house. Because I know they have troubles. You know? And matter of fact, uh, Thornton Wilder, in one of his uh, stories, an angel refuses to heal a doctor. And the doctor says, why not? Because I'm a doctor? No. This is the quote from the story. Without your wound, where would your power be? It's your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love service, only the wounded soldier can serve. Draw back. And on the way home, wow. the doctor realizes the truth of that because people, as he's walking down the street, you know, doors fly open. Come in here, our daughter sits in the dark. He won't talk to anybody but you. Come in here, our son locks himself in the bathroom. He only comes out when you're here. And he realizes because he's wounded, others talk to him. And my recommendation to people came from something I learned at Stop and Shop. I was poked in the back by one of the customers. I turned around, the lady with a bandage on her eye. And what she said to me really was something. 
She said, you are the only person in Stop and Shop who hasn't asked me what happened. Think about that. Everybody is talking to her because she has a bandage over her eye. Now, my crazy sense wow. of humor, I said, oh, it's because I know what happened. Really? Yeah, I have an abusive spouse also. And then she didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I tell people, you want to get to know people? Put a bandage over your eye when you go to work. Put a bandage over your eye when you go shopping. I mean, I have another line I used to say. How are you today, sir? I'm depressed. I'm out of my antidepressant, and my doctor's away on vacation, so I can't refill my prescription. And my wife said to me one day, honey, you think it's funny, but it's not. I said, what do you mean? Listen to the people when you say that. Blew me away. How many people were offering me their antidepressants from pocketbooks, lockers? They were all saying to me, come, I can, you know, maybe what I have can help you. You realize, you know, half the, more than half the world is on antidepressants. It was amazing. But again, if you don't hide your wound, then you help people. I shaved my head in the 1970s. It was the opposite of what everybody was doing, growing their hair down to their shoulders in those days. Everybody in the hospital talked to me. They just mm. lined up when I would wow. come out of the elevator. And I knew they were doing it because they knew I was nuts, that I had shaved my head. But you <laughs> see the symbolism. It took me years to know, why the hell did you do it? Reading Carl Jung, in one of his articles, he said, Dory, a hero's head is shaved. It is symbolic of what monks do. It is uncovering spirituality and becoming like a child again with a bare head. And boy, when I read that, I knew it was the truth for me that that I was burying things. That was one of the things I worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross because she said to me, what are you covering up from a drawing I had made where on a white piece of paper I added a white crayon to make snow on a mountain? She said, it's already white. What do you need to... Add a layer. You're covering up. And oh, the message was the same from all these people. So I realized what I needed to uncover was not bare skin on my head, but what was in me, all the pain, the emotions, all the things I was feeling, trained to care for people. I was trained to treat disease, you know, the diagnosis, but not the cause. <laughs> I wonder if it just feels like the disease is almost easier to manage than people. You know, in, in the profession of uh, emotions and this doctor that takes you to the cafeteria so that you're, you don't spill, yeah. spill out in an understandable right. human reaction. And, uh, yeah, so they're, as I say, they're trained to, tr- you know, to treat the diagnosis and not the person. Um, and it, it makes an enormous difference. Uh, some doctors think, well, I would, was told, so you're blaming your patients when I would ask my patients, what's going on in your life? What, why may you have gotten sick at this point in your life? The patients didn't have a problem with that because those are things I learned from my life. You know, like I mentioned, my wife's illness, my getting a severe infection, ending up in the hospital. Um, yeah, we were both exhausted taking care of five children. And I realized, hey, we need to get help, you know, to protect and care for ourselves. So it wasn't about 
blaming people. It was getting them to understand happening and what can make you vulnerable and that you take better care of yourself. That's why. Let me I just wondering, how do you expand people's emotional, uh, emotional uh, indexing so that they can feel the emotions and they can share them with their patients or their clients? They can, they can resonate, and yet they are not sapped or deflated by the act of doing that. What are your it's, thoughts? Well, it, it's just being there to help others. I think when you're doing out of love, you can get tired physically but you don't get drained emotionally. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you get tired, you go home, take a nap. Then you wake up and you're mm-hmm. feeling good again. I mean, I, like one patient wrote to me, when she thought she was going to die, she started doing all kinds of wonderful things. And the letter ends with, I didn't die, now I'm so busy, I'm killing myself. Now, again, mm-hmm. I told her, take a nap. <laughs> you know? Um, so you take time for yourself too. You treat yourself as well as you mm-hmm. treat others. You live the sermon, is the way I put it. Um, you, you know, if you're preaching, then live what you're preaching. And then you take care of yourself, too, and you're an example, too. And if you don't, you know, if you need a vacation, need a rest, fine, take one. It's not about guilt, shame, and blame. It's about taking care of yourself and living what you teach others. I'm going to press us a little bit more on this particular thing because – as you said earlier, so many people are taking anti-anxiety and anti-depression. And my people right. come into my office with normal emotions and normal reactions, including bereavement. And, and one of the questions is, and I'm not a prescribing physician, I'm a psychologist, one of the questions right. is, should I be taking medication? And a part of me knows that they'll go numb and they'll feel a little happier, maybe cope. And we now know that research says that we have a lot of cortisol that's not emitted into the body destructively when they take these medications. So there's some reason why those medications have long-term and short-term positive effects. But on the other hand, I feel like human beings have forgotten how to navigate the normal ebbs and flows, the comings and goings of sadness and loneliness and, and fear, even anger, and also love and happiness and joy and depth of existence. So Truly, when you say that the physicians have a hard time feeling or so another person has a hard time having good bedside manner, a part of me says I think that's more indicative of the symptoms of modern age where people don't are, are, are like perplexed by these experiences of being emotional creatures. So right. it, you say, it, you know, love yourself and take care of yourself. I think it goes beyond that. Well, I always say reparent yourself, you know, that, to feel that way about yourself, even to put pictures up around the house or where you work and love yourself whenever you look at one of those pictures to give yourself that. But, I, see, I'm not against somebody taking a pill. But what I often do, again, I mentioned about drawings. I say draw yourself taking your medication. Draw yourself in the operating room. I mean, it doesn't matter what the treatment is, but to symbolize yourself. And somebody draws it as a gift from God, fine, go ahead. And somebody else draws it as a poison, uh, then I'd say, no, this is not the right thing for you. Okay? Um, we have to work on it in another way for you. Uh, and mm-hmm. it helps them to understand themselves. That's what we each need to do. So, mm-hmm. again, you know, I operated on people. I'm not, but you see, the people who saw surgery as a gift, 
would wake up and say, yeah, I'm a little sore, but I don't have any pain. And the nurses thought my patients mm-hmm. were nuts, that they were refusing medication. <laughs> I said, they ever occur to you they don't hurt? The nurses looked at me mm-hmm. like I'm nuts, but they learned that the people who chose surgery, because they thought it was a gift and knew that their doctor cared about them, um, had a very different result than those who, you know, had the devil is cutting me up or giving me poison or, uh, it's amazing. So there are people who have side effects when they're not getting treatment due to medical errors. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there are Mm -hmm. people who don't get treatment and act as if they are. I mean, I'm talking about Mm -hmm. medical errors where you're not given any treatment. The doctor doesn't know it because you do so well, um, you know, tumors even shrink when people thought they were being radiated and the machine didn't have any radioactive material in it. And the doctor didn't realize it because he thought everybody is having a reaction to the radiation they thought they were getting. Um, mm-hmm. So I hear many of these stories and why I say doctors need to be trained, as we all do if we're therapists. One of our kids did something I was impressed with. You write the words the word, words, 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 words. If you write it down, you'll notice something with no space between the words. They become swords, 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 swords. So you can kill or cure with words or a knife, believe me. Hmm. And doctors aren't trained to talk to people. They, I thought I was discovering mm-hmm. wonderful things years ago. So what do you do? You send an article to a medical journal so the doctors will know. It was sent back. Interesting, but not appropriate for a medical mm-hmm. journal. So I sent mm-hmm. it to a psychiatry journal. Got sent back again. Yes, it's appropriate, but it's not interesting. We know all this. See, that's where the problem <laughs> lies. Yeah. People are treated the way your car would be treated if you took it to a mechanic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, mm-hmm. how's the front seat doing? <laughs> You know, how's your radiator <laughs> feeling? You fix the part mm-hmm. and you go home with it. Mm-hmm. But people are a unit. You cannot separate the body from the mind. Genes are communicated with. They don't make up the decisions. The message they get makes up the decision. You could have a, a gene for breast cancer and never get it in your entire life. While your twin sister does. But look at the personalities of those two people, see? Who's living their authentic life and who's being the submissive child, giving up her life to what her parents want? So again, it's not about caregiving isn't good for you. Hey, if you choose to be a caregiver, it is good for you because you're doing it out of love. And I know how I feel if I'm helping my wife. That's my choice. You know, if somebody Mm -hmm. calls me and says, can you come and give a lecture, blah, 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 I'd say, no, I'm not coming because I'm home doing some caregiving. I want to be with my wife. Now, could I hire somebody to come in the house? Yeah. But I'm not going to feel good driving away from the house to go give a lecture. I want to be with her. If she can come with me, fine. If she can't, I'm staying home. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a whole new movement called Stoicism that is uh, helping people with bipolar disorder, for example, or people who respond to their anxiety with too much extreme 
and there's an effort to teach people how to respond to themselves with a kind of stoic, third-person, step-back kind of attitude. Do you have any thoughts about the benefits of momentary rest of stoicism versus always uh, being fluidly in touch with your emotions? I think it's important to be in touch with the emotions. That when you're trying, you know, being stoic, be strong, it's it's bad because of what's happening mm. in your body. Your body is still reacting. And I think that's what you have to remember. You know, what is this emotion doing to me um, versus feeling it and reacting to it in the proper way? I always tell people, I grew up with mottos to live by. Do what will make you happy. These are for my parents. God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this if something went wrong. And that material things were to make it a better world for everyone. So I didn't realize that, see, my hypnotic messages were therapeutic until I met people who said, you don't know what my parents said, you know, that there were messages to die by. Don't expect good things to happen Um you know, don't get too happy because bad things follow good things. Um, we don't love you. You're a failure. You embarrass us. Uh, even children who were told to commit suicide. In one study, 70% yeah. of high school students said they contemplated suicide. I'm trying to get people to understand that you save your life by eliminating what's killing you. You don't eliminate yourself. You eliminate what's killing you. And then wonderful things happen. And some of it can relate to faith um, and God. And, and I mean, religion can be a problem when it has rules and regulations. Uh, and for them to remember that if you lose your health, go look for it. Don't think God is punishing you or you did something wrong. It's not about blame, guilt, and shame. It's about your potential. What can you do to help yourself? And and well, you don't Bernie call yourself a failure. I, and let me let me add this. Yeah, because I I find humor, you know, childlike humor works so beautifully. I had a lawyer in the mm-hmm. office who needed surgery. He said to me, "Why do I need an operation?" I thought, you know, I can be here for half an hour trying to explain something to a lawyer, because as one lawyer said, while learning to think, I almost forgot how to feel. You know, it's all intellect. So I said to the lawyer, I have five children, a lot of um, tuition bills, so I need to operate on you and make money. And he burst out laughing. (laughs) Then it was two people talking to each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And and it wasn't me, you know, knocking my brains out, trying to give him statistics and reasons and what could happen. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we talked to each other then. And I've even had an engineer, when I said, please draw me a picture, write a page of instructions on the paper. (laughs) All words. But that, again, was like somebody hit him in the head with a mallet. I said, you realize what you did? And that's when he realized what he was like. See, thinking, Hmm. not feeling. And his family was Mm -hmm. thrilled with what happened. um, Because it woke him up to what he was like. Whereas other things mm. had never done it, yeah. But you're saying wake up to what you your potential is, and keep waking up and keep waking up. Right. 
that doesn't mean you have to live in your pain all the time. I think it's a reasonable time to to say, okay, I could be in the pain right now of my loss, my loneliness, my sadness, my grief, my guilt. I could live there, but right now, give myself a rest. Just give myself a rest. Give myself that nap from my own And if you need help, ask for it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Say no to what you don't want to do and ask for help that you want. And give people the same right. You can ask for help, and if they say, I can't, okay, ask somebody else. That, and I may add expressing anger, not fear, um, but anger, because anger is appropriate if you're not treated with respect, see? Um, So if you're not treated with respect, speak up. Tell people what you Mm -hmm. need and want. Um, Yeah. Um, Don't just be submissive, a submissive sufferer. That does not get you Mm -hmm. anywhere. I call it being a Mm -hmm. respite. Be a responsible participant. Speak up. Let people know what you need. And that's why I say I don't have trouble getting angry um, if I need something and I want people to know it. Yeah. So anger out of uh, an extension of love is still love. Yes. We don't think about that. That's why I say my wife Mm -hmm. is, is, you know, for her to say to me, you're so handsome when you're angry, I always say, honey, that doesn't solve my problem. <laughs> but, but I'm laughing because then we talk. <laughs> See? If, and I may add, if that doesn't work, she says you're upsetting the pets. So, again, the, you know, it works. See? One woman um, did it very well. I used to make a pin with the word attitude. And people would wear it, you know, just have that right attitude. But she said what she did is pinned on her husband, and if he was not behaving in a way that was healthy for him, she would go over, grab the pin, and say, honey, straighten out your attitude. So you see, she's not saying you're (laughs) terrible, look what you're doing to yourself, and it worked for him. Um, Mm. And uh, I don't know if I should tell you, because my crazy wife's sense of humor, but I said to her after you know, the story came up about attitude. I said, honey, can you come up with a word so if you don't like how I'm behaving, you can say it? And she said, okay. I said, what's the word? Bastard. (laughs) 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 I mean, that's why I love her, you know? I mean, it's just all these crazy comments that come out of her and have all the other women (laughs) laughing. But let me add this to the women also. My wife and I spoke down south. And I got a feeling, it was for a women's group, so you got hundreds of women in this auditorium. And um, my wife and I would speak together. She did a lot of humor, one-liners, um, about relationships. I always say, like Henny Youngman, a female Henny Youngman. And um, mm-hmm. everybody appreciated the value of the humor. They could feel the difference it made from laughing 15, 20 minutes. And I would always point yeah. that out to them. But I felt hostility in the audience. And I said to the woman who invited me, what's going on here? It feels uncomfortable. She said, they're jealous of you and your wife and your marriage and your relationship. Because your wife is on the stage, can interrupt you, correct you in public. Um, They have become submissive. They have Mm. confused it with politeness and are submissive Mm -hmm. now. And that is the Mm -hmm. derivation of the word patient, a submissive sufferer, okay? So you don't want to be submissive. You can be polite, like saying, Mm -hmm. I don't like how you're treating me. Okay, fine, but at least you're letting people know. 
you're not just giving up, you know, and, and accepting that kind of treatment. And I'd say to remember those things. Well, all sorts of ways of living life, aren't there, Bernie? Yeah. And uh, yeah. so look for life coaches. That's the way I put it. Um, and they will teach you and coach you. They won't say, you're a horror. Look what you're doing. That's stupid. No. What does a coach do? Hey, come over here. Let me show you how to do that. Let me show you a better way. And so look <laughs> for life coaches. And the other I always say is be a love warrior. When people are driving you crazy, say, I love you. And it really mm. works. I mean, I had one woman who had alcoholic, abusive parents tell me I'm nuts. I say, I love you every day. Nothing happens. Then she came to me one day smiling. What happened? Oh, I was late for work, so I ran out of the house. My parents were in the street screaming, you forgot something. She said, I've been saying I love you to them for three months. I said, what did I forget? She said, you, and they said to her, you didn't say I love you this morning. She said, we cried and hugged wow. each other in the street. Yeah. Three months. Oh, wow. and, and then, so I tell people, wow. you want to drive people crazy? Call them up, email them, say I love you. And then skip mm-hmm. a day after three months and watch what happens. Mm. Well, Bernie, we love you. And I don't know your wife, but we send love to her too. And is there Thank any you. way that we can support you both through this process? Because we appreciate all that you give us. Keep us in your prayers. It does make a difference. Okay. Uh, Thank you. You're right there. Folks, you've been giving our instructions, and thank you for healing our souls even further this morning, and you be well. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Live life as fully and comfortably as you can. Yes, go ahead, Bernie. No, I just said bless you. And people want to look at my website, Bernie Siegel, M-D, S-I-E-G-E-L, Bernie Siegel, M-D. There's plenty there to read and can communicate. All right. I certainly forgot to say that. I certainly forgot to say I figure people definitely know, but you are absolutely right for people who are new to you. All right, everybody, go out, go forth, be victorious, enjoy, laugh, love, persevere. Be well, Bernie. Bye-bye. Bye.